Welcome to Star Watcher Podcast, where we explore startup universe, innovations, startups, and investors. In our first episode, we kick off our data-driven investing series, where I'll be interviewing industry professionals who use data to make investment decisions in everyday life. Today, I'm excited to have Amir Sani, Senior Vice President of Fund and Investment Analytics at Techstars on the show. We will be discussing the signal-to-noise ratio in different stages of companies, the state of data-driven investing, VC industry astrology, and of course, impact of large language models on the industry in general. Amir is a wealth of knowledge and I'm thrilled to have him on the show. In the show notes, you will find links to materials and concepts we are discussing. Perspectives shared in this podcast are Amir's and not those of Techstars. Hope you will enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episodes. And now, over to our conversation with Amir. Hey, Amir. <laughs> nice Action. to have you. <laughs> Action. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for uh, having me on the podcast. This probably is going to be an interesting journey. I will try to keep us on time and on track because yeah, I'm sure the second we one will is go more important, off rail. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the topic is, uh, I will try to pull us back into the VC startup field and, uh, but probably we'll, we'll go off the rail yeah. for the philosophy and stuff. So let's kick off with the basics. Tell a little about yourself, about your background and what you do in everyday life. So briefly, uh, right now I'm senior vice, senior vice president of fund and investment analytics at Techstars, and I design our follow-on strategy and I design insights that go across the company. So, for example, from ecosystem pre-accelerator, there's a lot of data there. There's a lot of really interesting information about the sort of frontier ideas around innovation. What are people thinking about? What are they coming up with? What are they thinking about innovating on? Then from there, it goes into applications, into the program. They, they put in more detail. We see that. Then that goes through the accelerator application process. Companies are selected by the MDs locally. And then that goes that gets the program set up where essentially the, the class starts. Companies go through our boot camp. Ultimately, we have access to information from the very edge of innovation all the way through the life cycle of a company that goes public and or gets acquired exits. And this is all very interesting information. And it, it kind of borderlines on this sort of D to C framework, which you're seeing a lot now, or investors are trying to get more data from companies so they can give better personalized financial type of offerings. You see debt funds starting now, and a lot of them are essentially offering services in exchange for data, and then coming in and offering debt, it's venture debt, essentially. And it's, it's really interesting how this is transforming the market. But we, we at Techstars, we see ourselves in a really nice position because of our scale, the number of investments we make yearly, and the access we have to this information. So it's really just a nice place to be. In terms of my role, I'm here to turn all this into signaling and turn it into a decision-making framework that can enhance our portfolio, but also enhance what we can offer the companies. So we can advise them, we can help them, we can connect them, and we can also match investors to them in a way that enhances them. So it's not just money, but it's smarter money. And this is often very useful for founders because founders are often confused about which investors to talk to. And their sort of universe of who they speak to is restricted by what they've heard of, read about, or they think is relevant. This is, this is an interesting problem because often that is a conversation that lacks what's actually happening right now in the market. So if you look at the market, you look at products, you look at how they're evolving over time, the diffusion of features through products, the diffusion of investor interests via their allocations over time, you can start matching and figuring out where markets are going and give them that leg up in that competition for money, but also for market. So I'm involved in this. Uh, previously, I, you know, PhD, multiple postdocs, Horizon 2020 projects, uh, ESG, uh, you know, macro, macro financial, stress testing, shocks to, you know, uh, bank solvency, et cetera but also quantitative finance, order book execution, reactive simulators, agent-based models. How do you build simulations that are properly calibrated to reflect reality in the way that you expect it, but also you can see through causal dynamics. So I, you know, I, I love this type of modeling and 
you know, causal modeling, double machine learning, all these types of things that have popped up to give us that access to signal versus noise. And just a last piece, I know I'm talking a long time, but you go towards VC on the sort of, if you look at financial services, when you go down to HFT, high frequency trading, the signal, the noise, I mean, you have some of the smartest people in the world working on that. It is very difficult to compete. You're literally, you're now forced to take more risk because everybody sees the signals. It's just a question of which signal do you think will get picked up? The really the 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 worst in terms of a signal to noise is private equity. And private equity is even further behind than VC. So VC has so much potential, but I think private equity is just afterwards. So if it, you know, and there's a lot in private markets generally that can be innovated. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Okay. Uh, so for the general public, basically you're the data machine learning guy in the company. But you're not doing just uh, what would be called data-driven and investing, but you are in a broader scale looking how to enhance company strategy with the your companies with data and how to help them, also the portfolio. I, I would say, I would first say that I'm more of a detective because a lot of what we're doing requires just constant iteration and detection of what is actually useful and not. In terms of helping the companies, often there are parallels to what we're creating that are useful for them with regard to product market. We're not going in and you know redesigning their teams, for example. We're not going at that level. But if they come in and they ask help and they need assistance with anything, we're there to support. But in my role, my role is to construct really high quality signaling that can be used for our follow-on, but there are parallels. I mean, this scales across the organization. What we create helps the MDs in terms of picking companies that are relevant. It helps people in ecosystem that want to fine tune their product market positioning. So their market fit, where should I position this? If I do this, actually, I become an ESG. I can just do a slight change of this product and now I've got a bigger market. Helping with this is essential. We're not there yet. We're getting there. But this is where I see it. I see that we are able to see what's happening in the market and we can see the demand. So when you can see the supply and demand and we can, we can match those, we can do it with investors, we can do it with companies, we can do it with our follow-on, our allocations, everything. I like your analogy with detectives. You're like a data detective. You're just looking for signals in the companies and then looking for ways how you can uh, use it productively. 100%. Um, and just to throw in there, when you look at like a detective, right? If you look at that, that description, there are lots of people that can be detectives. It doesn't mean to say the same thing. And what's interesting, if you look at trading, a lot of people use all kinds of methods to trade. Ultimately, at some point or another, everybody's seeing the same data. It's just a question of how they interpret it. And with yeah. VC, the problem is a lot of people stick to what's available to everybody. So then it becomes a game of, I need to place, I need to put more risk because it's like this problem of trading. I think this is more current than the other. It's I think. It's not my data tells me. That's what then you require to start doing things that are more sophisticated. So alternative data generation, trying to figure out what's happening with the market from the level of combining information that's usually not combined to get that input. So looking at search traffic, looking at SERPs, search engine result pages, looking at IP or geolocated scraping, looking at things that can enhance your view from the perspective of the customer, which can be the customer of the company, it can also be the investor, which is also is a customer in this case, because investor flows are what drive certain markets. So if you're a company and you can attract money and you can position well, you're gonna go forward. You're gonna have runway, you're gonna have the opportunity to experiment, to iterate. But if you can't do that and you don't know where to pivot to get that, you're stuck and you go into this sort of survival mode, which can kill your innovation or in some cases actually create innovation depending on how you manage. I, I listened to a chief scientist from OpenAI and there was the question like, are you, or how you come up with the ideas? And basically what he said was, it's not about finding or discovering new ideas, but rather understanding the concept, understanding and learning about the environment. So back to the 
your case, it's that everyone has the same data. It's just the perspective and your learnings and understanding about the data and how you can interpret and then apply the knowledge. So, yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree with that. I, I think it's very interesting as well because you have this culture now of engineering DevOps, which is critical. I mean, you, you need quality DevOps to execute lots of very complicated ideas and also simple ideas. But you also need the people that understand the analytics. And then you need people that understand the data. People kind of forget that understanding the data is not just taking what's in a database and making it available or an API and making it available. You have to look at the fusion of that information and you need to make mistakes. You need to get your hands dirty. You need to see what's there. And then you need to test ideas. And if you could do that rapidly, but also have a quality assessment of the value, you reach a point where you can start to understand specifications or understand, as you said, I, I, that, you know, this, the, the CTO, was it the um, head of research at OpenAI? Chief scientist. The chief yeah. scientist. Chief, yeah. Ilya, right? Ilya Siskovair, I yep. think, right? Yeah, so yep. this idea that, you know, it's like math, it's like proofs. A lot of times you talk to people that write a proof and it's so elegant. You go, oh, wow, this is so elegant. You're a genius. And then you <laughs> then you start to do proofs yourself or you start to work in that world you start to realize how messy it is to get to that, but then you can go backwards and clean up. And then you can really clarify it into a very simple proof. This is the same as what we do in VC with data. There's a lot of data. The question is, where are you willing to go down a rabbit hole to see if there's any value? And then can you keep track of what you've seen so that when you go down another rabbit hole, you can see the relationship, combine it, and create something really innovative. Yeah. And I, I think that this so is a skill. I mean, how you would describe where we are when it comes to data and more of like data-driven approach to investing in VCs, where we are as an industry now? I think it's an interesting question because when you speak to a lot of people that work on data-driven VC, a lot of times their primary focus is on curation or sourcing. Can we, can we just find the next winner? But actually, there's the there, next unicorn. The unicorn. Yeah, well, next the unicorn, or you know, depending on what kind of VC you are, maybe you just want to because you, if you're super early, it's a lot harder. There's not a lot of signal to suggest it, and there may be multiple pivots before they do something. So you're really generally looking at the team, the quality of their perseverance, their network, the quality of their you know thematic quality, etc. I mean, this is this is like the big soft thing. signals. Those those yeah. are li like really soft signals. Yeah. Super soft, you know, HR type signals. And then you go further down the line. Some of these deals that happened in the last few years, you just couldn't believe the multiples, you know, Adobe on uh, what was it? Uh, Figma. Figma. You know, those, yeah. those investors, they gave such a crazy amount of money and they also made a crazy amount of money in a year, year and a half. And so they're depending on the type of signaling and, and what you're looking at, you might be looking for unicorns or you might be looking for that special ops team that's able to execute whatever they can get their hands on in a way that can become a commercial product. But these soft signals are important, you know, depending on the, you know, I think at all levels. So, you, you know, there's a lot of problems and questions, but ultimately I think most of the conversations I've had are with VCs focused on sourcing. Can we just find whatever stage, can we just find that deal that nobody's seen yet? Yeah, so that, it, that's... Holy grail, that's promise. <laughs> well, even like, you know, somebody passed on that deal and I think it's a good deal or you have the opposite where I didn't do the deal and I'm tracking my anti-portfolio. I regret not doing it because now they're a unicorn. And then I don't remember the name of the company, but there was a company, I think last year that went from unicorn down, not FTX, but it was uh, in London. And there were people talking about the anti-portfolio saying, we skipped that deal and they became a unicorn. We were killing ourselves. But then when they crashed, they thought, oh, wow, good. We were right. But they didn't really have any data on that. It was kind of a bet. And I think that you have that level, but then you can go further down the line where people are looking more at, you know, you have ARC Capital where they will, they're a debt fund and the team is former EQT. They set up ARC Capital, A-R-K-K-A-P-I-T-A-L. And uh, they give a wonderful suite of tools for revenue management, probably with what happened with SVB. They're probably offering treasury management now, but they offer a lot of things that enhance SaaS companies' capabilities when they don't have a CFO or you know people to design these tools. And from what I understand, th this gives them deep data on the companies that they can then use to offer debt. So 
this is a wonderful way to get that data that everybody's looking for. Data that's not available via Crunchbase, PitchBook, you know, CV Insights, et cetera. You can actually see what they're doing. And I think that that's the level of insight that every investor dreams about. And you can talk to VCs. A lot of VCs are also, you know, they're also, they also tell you privately, well, I can't even get information from my own investment portfolio. You know, like I, I, I keep asking, but I just need to wait. So whenever they give it to me, I can see it. But ultimately, if you can exchange that value and give a value proposition that they will give you that data, it's the future. You know, that's where it should be going because then we can offer more value in an automated, scalable way. But then you have stuff that goes a little further down the chain where it's more about managing portfolios. And so at Techstars, we have almost 4,000 companies from all stages. And last year, we made almost 600 investments. So you, you look at the scale of that. You need to be very, very tactical when you're communicating to people, such as your investors in, in our fund, for example. Well, here are our thematic allocations. Here are our geographic allocations. So it becomes a very interesting problem because now you're talking portfolio level, which a lot of, a lot of funds don't do, right? Because they only have 10 or 20 or less than 100 investments. So most people's calculations when they talk about portfolio or power law, et cetera, usually the portfolio stops about 100. You know, I mean, I, I, it's rare to see that like outside of that. So I think you have those other issues, right? So you're talking portfolio level, and then you go to the next step. You think about SVB. You think about you know, the shocks that can hit your portfolio or the J curve, you know, the fact that it takes five to seven years for values to start arising in your portfolio. So yeah, you made a lot of investments. How much value did you create after five to seven years? Then how much DPI did you actually return to your investors? So these become very interesting problems and fewer and fewer people are working on it. But, you know, when you look at this within the framework of LPs, multi-asset, pensions, family office, you're not their only investment. And they're also looking at like the time horizons on these investments for returning. So it's not like they're going to give all their money to a VC. They, they want to see their money. So they're going to put a percentage. I think Yale, they were at seven to nine or 10%. And then because of the LP denominator effect, where most of the other markets started crashing or going down, you know, their private market portfolio started jumping. And rather than rebalancing and getting out of those positions or doing secondaries, et cetera, I think they're up to 14 or 18% now. And you know you see this, and this this hurts all kinds of dynamics, like capital calls. It hurts the ability to ask for more money because the, the LPs are saying, "Hey, look, you know, we're over allocated. We've got a structured allocation policy that gets us to our version of the efficient efficient uh, um, frontier. So our multi asset portfolio can't handle more. So there, you get to this life cycle where suddenly it becomes more of a strategic question, and then you start looking at shocks." So what if you have an SVB? What if you have so, economic collapse? Go ahead. There's, there's an interesting, I see that there are like two ends. One is pure emotions, and then the other end is pure data. And historically, of course, without data, it's just emotions. Like how, how I feel about the industry, the market and everything and the company and the founders. So now we are somewhere on this spectrum as an industry, right? And uh, depending also on the players. How do you think where we are there? So I, I think you could think of what you just said as signal versus noise. And then <laughs> you can put the emotion, like, you know, you look at like Jesse Livermore, you know, the, the famous fictional character that was authored on, uh, there was several books about him from the early, early 1900s, the fear and greed factor, right? So you've got fear and greed and you've got signal versus noise. And I, I think that what's interesting is you've got this recalibration that was, uh, how do you say, verbalized or publicized after SVB, where funds were suddenly saying, hey, you know, Y Combinator, we just removed 30%, I believe it's 30% of our staff, because this part of our strategy later on is not really as effective as we thought. Or you've got other funds which, which had an opportunity to streamline and calibrate their fund generally after what happened with SVB, but probably a longer term reaction to what was happening after FTX and after what was happening last year with valuations. All of this kind of shifts around and starts to do a little bit of an adjustment in the market where people, there's a wonderful article, I, I don't remember, but it was about the, the Court of Versailles versus Wild West. I think I sent it to you. Ah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I read it. it. Yeah, it's good. It's good. <laughs> it, it really it's good. It summarizes exactly this, right? When you, when you have, 
you know, lots of revenue, money, everything's going well, it starts to become more like the court of Versailles. You say the right joke, you know the right people, you, you're, you're kind of laughing at the same time as the, the GPs or the CEOs or the, the leaders of your company. You're brought into that circle of, hey, you're going to flourish here. Then politics and everything yeah, yeah politics yeah, yeah. and you know scratch my back scratch your back you know all this kind of you know soft skills and this sort of this other level because everything's going well there's not a lot of you know eat what you kill hunter type of mentality which is this sort of wild west and you know wild west is you know you are you're going to get commission only there's no base salary you only get paid what you create you have to figure out like you have to yeah. fight for survival yeah, you yeah, need to yeah. fight for survival. It's survival of the fittest. It's hunter gatherer. You know, hunters versus gatherer. I mean, it's literally eat what you kill, as they say in, in the UK. So you would say that we have experienced this reality check now that uh, we are from Versailles. We are back Versailles. We are back to the Wild West. <laughs> I think I think some some funds are still faking it. Like they're still saying, "Oh no, no, everything's as as it is," and to some degree, if they have enough cushion or they have enough to sort of keep the quality of the experience of being there an employee the these things you know consistent they can cushion that with what they've done so they've had a lot of fat and they're able to burn through a bit of that fat so i, I don't think everybody suddenly shifted over to wild west but you start to see that you know the dd is becoming more important due diligence it's not like last year yeah. where you started reading that nobody looked at the ftx you know financials or income statements and they just did the deal I mean, afterwards, people thought, this is crazy. How could you do that? And then you look at the name of the funds. They're really big funds. So it's, yeah. we were in an era where people could do no harm. You know, it was a court of Versailles. But now people realize, well, actually, data, due diligence, meeting the team, getting to know them, trying to understand their vision, understand what they're planning. Even if we know they may change it and pivot, we're trying to assess who they are and what we think they're capable of, but also with a grain of salt, because we know that unless people are hit with stressful times, which a lot of companies arguably last year until now, even now are, are facing this because of funding and various reasons, they're not, you're not going to really see what they are made of, as they say, they're, they're going to show yeah. you that in those times. And I think we're in a time where people are, are seeing what they're made of, but also what they're willing to do for their vision. And I, I think a lot of founders haven't been tested like that traditionally in like the last few years because you know because capital was cheap yeah. capital was very cheap i mean this this goes into this whole conversation about you know commercial real estate right where cap rates the capitalization rate on a commercial investment you know is is less than five percent so you've got somebody buying buildings and getting less than five percent and they could go and just buy bonds so it's you know that risk is just completely yeah. messed up well with vc you, you need to return a certain amount of money to your investors, and it needs to be over multiple years. So there is that risk-reward trade-off that needs to be balanced. And now you need to do a little bit better job on the due diligence and everything. So even if capital you know, was still there, it is more expensive. But also, there's a greater sort of expectation on what you're going to do when you actually outlay that Raise money. Raise the money. Yeah. Raise the yeah. money. But like on an investor side, as you go further down, like, I mean, early stage, still ideas. So it's really, you know, it's not going to change much. But as you move along, you know, to different funding rounds, the, the level of criteria is going to change. And, and people are going to look at things more, you know, concretely. And they have time. So I mean, don't, don't so blame these because, but actually now, <laughs> now they have time to look at it before. Yeah. Well, you better do this. The, the founders, you know, better do this. Or, you know, I got another, you know, investor. So there's this FOMO and FOMO. Yeah. It, it was funny FOMO because is I remember yeah. it's never good. And, and, and like, I talk, I, I'm sorry, I'm talking so much, but like, there's one funny <laughs> thing that I've heard multiple times and I'm not saying that founders should do this, but when a VC emails a founder and the founder doesn't reply for a very long time, VCs suddenly <laughs> think, Oh, that's the founder. I, you know, it's like a weird sort it's of like fake signal. Yeah. It's, <laughs> It's like astrology for VC. Oh, you yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> that's not a signal, you know, maybe they're on holiday. But like what I've heard multiple times, hey, they didn't respond. Everybody else is really quick. They must have something, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, it, yeah, I like the analogy with the astrology. It makes sense that there are these things that, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, they throw rune stones. <laughs> you know, I've got my VC rune stones. I throw them on the table, and if you know, depending on if the chicken legs are yeah. in a certain angle, I'm but, gonna. <laughs> but that's the case because sometimes the the VCs have this uh, crazy ability to bend reality in the way where how they want it and uh, find the facts and support it. Like they want to invest in this company. It doesn't make sense rationally, but they will bend the reality and just like, let's do that. I mean, there's a, that's a bias, right? I forgot the name of that bias. There's so many biases, but that's one of those. We, we sort of, um, we find the evidence we need to support our yeah, argument, yeah, yeah. but we've already yeah. made the argument. And, I, and that's a really good point because I think a lot of the data-driven VC has become that. You know, a lot of people, they got really excited about sourcing and, you know, curation and scoring companies, et cetera. But ultimately, end of the day, GPs and investment teams are saying, well, who, so what? I still need to Yeah, they it. overrule. It's like, yeah, cute, it cute story, bro. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or you get, you get somebody who says, you said 92 out of 100. I think they're 89. And it's like, <laughs> uh, really? Like, you really think that little difference is going to... Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's market is one of course, the, then the mover more towards data-driven approach. But of course, then the, now we have the elephant in the room, the AI is coming. And that's another one pressure. Like for every fund, probably LPs will ask, so what's your AI strategy, kid? Um, so that's, that's another player we have. So what do you see? What, what is happening within... AI, large language models in the VC industry? Large language models, I, I would say, you know, you hear this a lot. They're kind of, they're a mix of techniques that have existed for a long time. I mean, and, and what they've been able to achieve is really such an engineering feat that, you know, I, I couldn't go on my laptop or my computer or my desktop and just suddenly come up with, uh, you know, GPT-4. It's just, I, I wouldn't have the money or the resources to do that. But, you know, you look, there's been a long history of, you know, large, you know, language models. Uh, there's, you know, it's shifted from the semiotics or the, you know, uh, Noam Chomsky kind of models over towards, you know, I wouldn't say Markov, but it's very, very much like, a, you know, you have memory, you have attention, you have weighted mixtures over historical content, you've got context, you have all these things now, but essentially you're estimating a conditional distribution and you're trying to produce that output in a quality manner. So it's it's interesting because this is something that has been redone more and more over time in different formats, you know, Bayesian methods, conditional approximation, et cetera, and then GANs, and then we get to the large language models. Large language models manage, and, and it's really interesting because the, the UI of ChatGPT and the timing where ChatGPT was released when Stability AI released Stable Diffusion. So, you know, from a business tactic perspective you know this was released to it, it, and then it just completely shut off attention on stable diffusion and it went back you know so it was like dolly look at us we're open ai stable diffusion out of nowhere stability ai wow what what's dolly then ChatGPT, who's stability ai <laughs> you know so it yeah. just took it away now we're in this world where this ui and this natural sort of interaction through Instruct GPT and these techniques like Lambda Adapter, you know, all these things that are happening so rapidly, they managed to capture this sort of part of the vision and the fantasy that a lot of us hackers slash, you know, detectives slash, uh, you know, visionaries around what we think intelligence could be, it managed to capture that enough where a lot of people now are looking at it as the sort of future path or at least an avenue to explore to enhance whatever AI, quote unquote, AI ability they think is important for their product or their investments or whatever they're doing. But there are, you know, so I would just say that, that I, I, that's the first thing I would say. But yeah, <laughs> any questions or what? So, yeah, let, let's get back to the VCs. So yeah, yeah, yeah. where we are in the industry, uh, in the VC industry with the, uh, adopting uh, this technology in everyday lives. So I think it's interesting because you have vector search, which has been around forever, right? Face from yeah. Facebook. So 
first thing you can do is just do a sort of test on embeddings. And often you find that there are actually open source embeddings, you know, through sentence so transformers that are effective. For the listeners, for the yeah. listeners, define embeddings. So you're, you're embedding, you know, there was a, a I think it was, um, what was it called? Word to Vec, right? This was the very beginning of this. Can we, can we embed words into a multidimensional space such that we can search for words in that space in a local neighborhood which have a semantically meaningful relationship? So, so there would be word startup and in multidimensional space, it would have a space and somewhere close there would be investment. <laughs> Well, maybe, right? And again, it depends on what you're using to do the embedding. I think the better um, version of that is to say, I, I think the original examples were father and then not father, and then not father would go and be close to mother, right? Mm. So like it, there'd be these, you could actually get meaningful relationships and you could go not mother and it would not mother was close to father. And, you know, you could embed this. Now, depending on what you use to embed, you can embed content in a way that has very, very meaningful relationships. That's not going to be the same kind of embedding that potentially works for, say, the Techstars portfolio, right? I, I want to have an embedder that is highly specialized on startups, on innovation, and I want it to be strong enough or, or I want it to disambiguate enough and be distinguished enough the features, for example, then you would need to write tests that would sufficiently distinguish, for example, fintech sectors or like fintech uh, sub-themes. So, you know, I always think it's funny when you look at people and they go, oh, well, what sector do you invest in? Well, you know, fintech is so huge, right? I can't tell you just fintech. I should be more specific. Well, what do you do in fintech? And fintech is financial technology, so that's under finance, right? So, you you know, and it's like a it's technology finance, had a baby, you had fintech. Now, yeah. fintech, well, I want to talk to you about fintech. Well, what do you want to talk about, right? It's like going to somebody who's a, a you know doctorate or a PhD and saying, I'd like to talk about biology. Medicine. I heard you're a PhD in biology. <laughs> yeah. Well, what does that mean? You know, it's like a big area. Fintech, accounting, so, payment rails. I mean, you can get down to this sort of niche and hyper niche level, but the embeddings are only going to be effective if you've chosen an embedding or learned an embedding that's able to distinguish those. Like- so Those, embeddings yeah. are the the building block of the language model, and that's yes. the the thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and what's interesting is there is a there are some open benchmarks against OpenAI's DaVinci and and some of these embedding uh, embedders like you can embed with them, and sentence transformers and sentence transformers is completely free or you know with some of the other like Cohere AI etc. And you can look at these without even fine tuning them. Fine tuning means I take one that's already completely you know, learned and I try to adapt them towards my particular use case. So I take the open AI embeddings and then I fine tune them for FinTech because I only like FinTech, you know, let's just assume yeah. that's it. Then I can fine tune that to do a better job at distinguishing the hyper niche dis dis like differences that are at the feature level, for example, or, you know, you can do geographic uh, feature level you could do the investors. I mean, you could do all kinds of things to really fine tune that. Improving but, the model. Yeah, yeah you, you're improving the model. And this is like those, those error curves coming down based on the particular objective you set up to distinguish those things for you. So for okay. back to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Back to the VCs now. Yeah, back to VCs. Yeah. I think it's really funny because, you know, you look at these examples of, uh, you know, tell me about your companies, you know, and Techstars has a lot of companies. So someone says, I want to know about biology. <laughs> well, what do you mean? So with these embedders, what's interesting is you could create a vector search that has high quality embeddings that would allow you to use natural language. And the natural language interaction could come through a ChatGPT type interface, but you would be able to look up companies rapidly because they're embedded really well. So I could type in, I would like a biology and you could use any variation of biology because these embeddings also have a notion of synonyms local neighborhood, I could write bio, I could write biology, biological, biotech, you know, they're and all going to be really- understand which companies you mean. Well, understand, uh, quote unquote understand in the sense that it's able to locate that neighborhood 
in that high dimensional space that has that it probably has something to do with what you just typed. You could even make uh, spelling errors, and if those spelling errors were in your training, it will know that you know you misspelled biology, and and often they're really good at the spelling corrections. You're yeah, in that space for close. biology. Yeah, they're yeah, close. Yeah. And then you go biology, and I'm also interested in tech. So then there's another part of this biology space, a little smaller maybe, that's you know in another dimension. It's actually attached to tech. So now you've got this okay. other sphere, and now yeah. you can go. I can find biology, technology, genetics, or I can type the name of a company that is in that, and it will also be linked to that space. And it allows you to rapidly now, look. Okay, up. now we that's that's just like okay. Now show me companies about this topic. That's already well. That that's nice if you have right data in the model. But uh, what what else? What are other possibilities to do with this technology besides having a chat about companies? So I think it's funny, right? Um, I wasn't even chatting yet, right? But let's say I wanted to chat. Let's say I wanted to go to your website, you're a VC, and I'm an investor, and I want to know what companies that you have that are similar to my preference, but I'm really bad at describing what I like. I just put a URL, and you could have now, you, they have agents that are connected to ChatGPT, and if you have a ChatGPT-type interface with agent interactions, you put in the URL, the agent grabs the content from the URL, it finds out what it's similar to, and then now I can feed that back. Further, let's say that I also have financial restrictions. I go, well, I want it to be within this valuation range, or I want them to be in this, you know, this, 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 this. You, you can you could train it, but at the same time, if you just use it to look up and then you run a simple filter, you reduce all the complexity completely because now you've just managed to put in a URL, grab the info, put it into a template, and that template's compared to all your companies. And now you can say, okay, yeah. these match in terms of so, financing rounds, et cetera. So agent basically is your, your knowledge. Like it understands what you're looking for because you showed like, this is what I'm interested in. This is my URL. I'm interested, this kind of stuff. These are the plugins, right? You know how they talk about yeah. the plugins for ChatGPT. Yeah. So yeah. They're also referred to as agents. This shouldn't exactly. be confused with an agent-based model. Uh, agent-based model, mm. funny enough, is where we're moving. We are, we are completely you know, 100% moving towards a complex adaptive system or an agent-based model where it's, you know, essentially I type that in, I want to know about something and here's the URL or I want to know about something and it actually has access to search and it can find the URL. And, you know, there are all kinds of capabilities that will start growing. And when you think about VC on the sourcing end, you know, to some degree, if I go on Google or I go on a standard search engine and I type in, a particular company's name, if I go deep enough, I'm going to find most of their competitive competition. I'm going to find a lot of companies that come up with similar terminology. So unless I start scraping at scale, anything that comes up on most of these demo days or conferences or uh, crunch base or new company listings, like business registries, and I start scraping and I grab whatever I can, and then I build my own search engine, most people are going to probably go to Google or Bing or you know somewhere where they can grab that. Then the GPT tool or ChatGPT or whatever you're using will use that information, sort it out, put it into a kind of structured format, and then run the comparisons and return what it thinks are comparable companies. So, I mean, there are lots of things you can do. And if you think about like, you know, in France, a lot of private companies have to register their financials. There's an organization yeah. there. So if I was a researcher, I would connect this there if I was doing research and I could actually get all the data, you know, so there's, there's different compare... ways to use it. So... If we compare this to the uh, speed trading, then over there, they can achieve the speed and agility because they have data, because that's more hard data. And now with large language models, we kind of are moving in direction where we can make more sense from soft signals, soft data, which are like indirect information which enables industry like VCs to act faster based on data, because previously it was hard to make sense from this description. I mean, that, or that, that assumes you have allocation, right? It assumes that you can get in the room and, and make a deal. I think that you, it also assumes your hallucinating machine, your hallucinating tool is giving you the proper hallucination if you depend on one. So you, you do need to look at the Monte Carlo nature of this as well. So if you have a tool like this that can generate randomness 
because of its nature of modeling the follow-on words based on the probability the conditional distribution is estimated for what you've entered. So I type something in, I make a slight difference on the, what I've typed, and it's going to give me a slightly different output. Yeah. But if I then go in and I change my prompt and I add a sentence like, assume that your random seed is zero, give me a response to this. It will give you a response. And presumably, if I change that seed, it'll give me something else. But if I can exploit that, I don't just get one hallucination. I get a distribution over what its belief is. And then that's much more powerful because then if I'm a VC, you know, I wouldn't trust fully what I see unless I can self-moderate. Like I happen to be an expert in fintech, so I know what I'm reading. But if I start looking at, you know, uh, genetic engineering, I, I have very little expertise in this. I don't even know how to write a prompt that will give yeah. me sufficiently high quality reply. So you need to use tools to give you that. So you could have, there's a lot of new work on iterating your prompt and writing things, yeah. catch your errors, improve your, improve my prompt or have it interact with you to construct a prompt. You know, it's, you can do lots of things, but ultimately for a VC, you know, I don't think that this is the tool that's going to give you that HFT, that high frequency trading mm -hmm. type of capability. You need to be an angel list or, uh, you know, access to deal flow from a, like a tech stars or access to stocks.com and just, you know, you need to do things where you have allocation and then you have optionality. And then you saw this with Tiger, SoftBank, they were going earlier and earlier, giving higher and higher valuations to people that weren't able to really distinguish that that was not a good idea at the time. Maybe they didn't have the experience, but, you know, that killed a lot of startups too, right? I mean, giving people too much money. Too much money. <laughs> it, yeah, it's like the lottery, you know, what is it? There's a name for this, right? With lottery ticket winners. You know, they, they, a yeah. lot of them have yeah, horrible yeah. outcomes, but, you know, with, with, a, with going early and earlier and then using high-end consulting, Bain, McKinsey, et cetera, to build your decks and saying, hey, we know your market. One, and this is what they were doing at Tiger and SoftBank, right? They were paying tons of money to get these decks created and they would turn around and give deals overnight or on the first call. They would basically say, here's your market. Here's what you're doing. We know it. We're experts. And here's what we think it's worth. Go at it. But that just killed the iteration, the rabbit holes, the pivots, and it forces them to say, hey, we just got a deal for 10 million in revenue, but we just got 100 million. That's not enough. Like we need so, more. Yeah, go ahead. Big, big uh, tangent. Goes, <laughs> yeah, but this goes in direction where uh, there's a, of course, big, big, uh, big topic is alignment problem. But over here, it's even like if VCs are using this kind of tools, they have to make sure that they align with their approach and vision and understanding, basically. Their thesis. Yeah. I mean, that's because an issue, there right? can be cases. Yeah, there could be cases where the the model comes back with a really strong opinion, and you have no clue. Like, should yeah. I trust it or not? <laughs> But you just described most data-driven VC, right? And like the reaction of, hey, that founder is a 92 out of 100 for this sector or this theme. Most people are like, so what? I'm an expert. So you have to look at these tools as inputs into a larger scheme. And for example, with these large language models, you know, you, experts will be able to construct a quality prompt. But if you're not an expert and you're using this, you need to look at Monte Carlo's. You need to look at this as one of many inputs. You can't rely on it. And what's interesting is that, you know, like if you if you start using it solely as your tool, your nature, your psychological fear versus greed is going to get completely messed up and you're just going to have FOMO on anything. And I think it's funny. It's uh, when, you know, I'm not for or against crypto. I'm just saying that there's always been this when you buy, you know, in, in terms of not crypto and Web3. But if I look at Bitcoin and you talk to people, they always talk about they regret not buying it. And then when they sell it, they regret selling it. So it's literally, I regret when I have it. I regret when I don't have it. Basically, you never feel good. You never have what you want. You always have the <laughs> psychological regret, always have FOMO. And if you're relying on tools like this without actually taking it as a sort of research tool or feeding it into a larger system that has guardrails, checks, and you know additional opinions, because most VCs will use DD. They'll, in DD, they will use experts as well. They should continue doing that. But this should so be this one could of many be tools. Just one, yeah. This is just one of the experts. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it. I wouldn't even call it an expert. One of but, the inputs. Yeah, one of the inputs. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what you could think of it as one of the inputs, or you could structure it in a way that enhances those inputs. So I go to my DD. I go to all my experts. 
I then take all their content, I go through and I and enter it into a tool like this, have it allow me to interact with what I just got from all these experts that I don't understand. And I can learn more about it. And it's a wonderful learning tool. I can ask it to give me variations, risks. Is this correct? Are there other ways to look at it? What are other perspectives? Explore it, go back to those experts, iterate or enter that into a sort of uh, document that's reviewed and then go through a process where it's enhancing my ability to screen and understand exactly what's happening. I think you know that's one use. The other use, you go to your experts and you construct fine-tuned versions that are experts in fintech. Like you look at the Bloomberg GPT. Yeah. I, yeah. I construct one of those for each of my sector specialists. And then I take those as inputs into a larger model. You know, if I was a, a central bank, I'd go to my specialist teams. I would fine tune models on each of them. I would use them as validation models over a larger model that took all of their feedback in a sort of reinforcement loop yeah, that was enhancing a single model. Yeah. And then I would use those specialist models as validators of that larger model. Because then you have a system that has advanced guardrails that's enhancing your ability to use a tool like this. But you need a council of experts. You need to exploit the dynamics. And it's not a flat model, right? It's not just one extra input. It's better to use it inside of this sort of agent-based structure where you know, your agents are your experts. They're specialist models. You have your market maker or whatever your central node for you know whatever is outputting, and then that feeds into other systems and guardrails and checks and like classification systems say true or false on the outputs. And there's a lot of things you can do. And, and even if you look at a large language model, you know, or you look at a neural network, you always have that final layer with logistic regression or some you know decision making threshold that's run on what's the final set of features yeah. or layer. This is the same. You, you need to think in that structure that this is an input okay. into a system, and then that outputs into multiple layers. Now, if we flip the table, how how startups can use this for the fundraising? I have I I came across on LinkedIn. Someone posted that ah, pitch decks are dead. Like here comes the perfect pitch decks. The the and you can build literally. You can build a a bot which writes emails and responses to the VCs with the right content. What's your I mean, opinion on that? I, there's a wonderful VC, Yohei, who does a lot of these. I think he did Baby yeah. GP, right? So like he he did this, right? He had a, a deck, but there's actually a piece of work from Google. And I can't remember the author, uh, very nice uh, gentleman. And he created something called Dramat Dramatatron. And he can construct fully coherent, uh, you know, screenplays or stories. So you have fully coherent narratives constructed through this Dramat Dramatatron framework. And this was before all this was released, but you imagine they you could use that to construct coherent narrative on a deck. Then, you know, you, you can take the deck construction that you can get through what Yohei was showing and what other people are doing now. So construct your deck, but you better have a narrative, right? Like you better have a coherent narrative. And yeah. then you can ingest lots of decks. So for example, we have a lot of decks, a lot. If we ingested yeah. all these decks, you know, that's one way to construct a deck, but you don't just want decks, right? You want decks that get funding and are sensitive to the economic climate that are passing Understand the wider context. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you Has, need to build a yeah. causal model of some sort that will account for various factors that have influenced the reason why those decks got funding. And then you need to turn on and off those influences so that you can get the underlying signal, which got the funding. Then you need to look at that and construct a system that will generate these decks that will attract that type of investor. Because right, it's conditioned on the investor. If I go to a, of you know, a tier one versus just a you know you know a, I don't know others, it's a completely different conversation. If it's an angel versus you know like Sequoia, like I mean, there's all these different so, constructions. Yesterday, I saw a demo where they had two agents. One was a VC agent. And one was a startup agent. An interface was basically chat. And they asked startup agent to come up with an idea. And it was something about cereal for kids uh, and boxes, something. And then they asked it to pitch that idea to the VC agent, which then evaluated. And I, I watched that video and actually it was using all the right words and, and uh, 
presenting in a way which is it's like on the seven level of the seven of the presentation and covering topics like go to market strategy what's the market what's your unique selling point and everything and then the vc side of agent was evaluating that and those both are systems where 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 we live in that future <laughs> like I, I i as a startup just ask like here's my business create me a, a pitch deck and everything and then on that side there's no one actually reading that there's another agent so i, I think it's interesting right because you have there's a, a post where someone put in the svb financials into <laughs> ChatGPT and asked it to and it only had data up to 2021 and it didn't use the name SVB to give an assessment and a risk assessment score, rack score, et cetera. And it did a great job. Then it asked, how do we mitigate that risk? And it did a great job. And what's interesting about what you're saying is that if actually you want, if you want to use these tools, you should give it your, your details. You should give it the content you're using and then say, package that, you know, tell me how to pitch that. And then you can iterate that. Like you just said, you can refine it, et cetera. But I think ultimately, when you look at the future of that, you know, this is probably where you're going towards, you know, the idea of like this becomes HFT, like high frequency, et cetera. But they, I think there's a fund started by the founder of Revolut called, I think it's Quantum Light. Their vision is to do something like this as well. Not with ChatGPT, but they talked about doing HFT type strategies for venture. And, you know, you, you look at AngelList. If you're a fund on AngelList, you can... You can essentially allocate across. Allocate capital, yeah. Yeah, and and I think like stonks.com is the new one, right? Where you can just look at every demo day and just allocate to everything. The thing is that ultimately it comes back to that original conversation we had where the conversation we had around, you still need to think about the risk allocation. So there are signals. And if you're really early stage and you're running through that cycle, great. But like there's not much data there anyway. So in the end, you still need to bet and decide whether or not you're gonna make that bet. You're gonna take that risk. If you imagine a world where it has all the information possible, you still need to make a bet on where you think things are going. Where's the market going? Where's the demand coming from? Where do investors, you know, there, there's, a, there's a strategy in trading where people will use technical analysis, not because they believe in it, but because enough people believe in it, that that is a crowd that you can exploit. So you can use those so signals Again, like we're entering a world where it's still a risk reward trade-off and you still need to be able to see what's happening. And this goes into this project where there was an AI report where they showed a slide from InstaDeep at BioNTech where they created an early warning system for COVID. And the idea that you can start to create Monte Carlos and look at sort of an early warning type of nature, then you can make a little bit more enhanced view. So you could say, okay, I'm a VC. My chat interaction approved this. That's just one input again. Comes to me, and I put it through my early warning system, and it shows there's a high likelihood, and it's no longer warning. It could be called an early opportunity detector or whatever, but it shows me that there is growing demand su sufficient to hit a critical point where traffic will increase, demand will increase, and investors will like this topic. Do I allocate? Now, if I want to remove myself from that, I just need a threshold. If the value is 0.8, or I have a weight vector. If these values on all these different criteria that I think are important are above these values, give them this check size. And again, it's risk reward. That check size, cool. I can lose that. I don't care. Or I'm sufficiently confident in my system where I will commit and I will keep committing, et cetera. Right. I then you look at like Kelly betting and <laughs> <laughs> I think the biggest challenge with the in general with LL, LLMs is um the presentation is so awesome. Startup startup agent is pitching that and it's doing good job. And the conversation seems awesome, but it, it, it can pull you in and you could just ignore what you were now talking about, the risk and reward and understanding, uh, having more skin in the game. And it, it's, it's not just about having this beautiful story. It's actually understanding why they're, why they're, uh, spectrum and maybe that's we are maybe in general we are just in transaction now having G these one type of models but moving in these agents where agents start to argue with each other like you you get the sense of 
more sense of context that one agent is telling you it doesn't make sense. No one is eating cereal anymore. Here's my background. And another one says, yeah, but it's it's resurrecting because of next generation coming up. And but you, and you also so- have you also have information like you know, asynchrony, right? Like you have this um information arbitrage. You you could be pre-FTX collapse talking with it, and all the information it knows, it's telling you it's great. Because like look what happened with FTX and all the funding and all that market. Now, it's it's potentially ignoring all these kinds of risks that are actually very clearly there if you have the data. So let's assume you also have the data. Now you have this bet that they are doing something that they shouldn't be doing, but you don't know for sure. You can see so much, but you don't know. You still need to make a bet. You still don't know. Yeah. There's always mm-hmm. that I don't know. So and then I'm not investing as a VC mostly my own money. I'm investing the money of LPs. I have an ob- obligation. So I, I don't know. I need to make an informed guess. No matter what you think, it's always like I need to come up with my my risk and I need to think about what are the risks. Now, if I'm ignoring portfolio shocks or fraud and all these kind of risks, you know, maybe I didn't do my job. But let's say I am paying attention to that. And in this weight vector that I use for my decision making, that's one of my categories. And you look at the financial crisis. This was also the situation. Most of the models captured 99% of the dynamics. The problem is that 1% that they ignored had the risk of basically ruining everything. So they were, they were not looking at that asymmetry. So you, if you take a look at this in this dynamic, it doesn't matter if you've got a new tool. It's still an input. It's still something that should be taken with, you know, conditioned on a lot of things. Yeah. And I need to make a bet. So that's why a lot of times when you see VC, you know, the, the follow-on rounds are you know, often there's, I believe in it, or I better not get out of that follow on round because I don't know if I believe it anymore, but I don't want to signal that it's bad. And then other people come in and say, ah, must be bad. We should not give the same valuation. So you're actually hurting yourself again. So it's very funny, right? Like I'm in it. I want to maintain where I'm at. And if I'm traditionally out at this stage, it's okay. But if I continue and then I stop suddenly when I'm commonly going, so there's all this kind of poker going on. So we are back to the emotion part. Well, it's... I would say you could call it emotion, but it's risk. It's what is your, it is, but, and risk is not a number, yeah. right? Risk is not even a function. Risk is a very complicated topic that is often summarized by, you know, what is my risk reward trade? But actually, you know, how are you measuring risk? What are you using to measure risk? Can you even measure volatility? Can you measure the downside risk? You can't, you know, all these things are approximations. So you always need to take into consideration many things. I mean, you look at, you know, like the fanciful descriptions of people taking money from, you know, in, in novels or movies from the wrong people, right? Those people in those movies, you're like, you're watching that movie and you're saying, don't do it. Like, you're going to get killed. <laughs> or you look at James Bond, right? With the quantum solace, I think it was, or one of the, the James Bond with Daniel Craig and, you know, the, the chief, the accountant. You know, you look at that dynamic, it's really like, it's not that in VC, but that guy just got killed. He's dead for all you know, intents and purposes. He's really angry at Daniel Craig, the startup, you know? But he he, you know, there's always these bets. There's always going on. And the thing is that you need to be tactical. And that's why, you know, when you look at, you know, I, I always like to think of this as moneyball versus the Babe Ruth effect. Or, you know, playing roulette, yeah. hoping for that winner versus position sizing. And a lot of people forget position sizing and in investments, but your risk is your money management strategy. It's your position sizing strategy. You know, you can look at Kelly or fractional Kelly. You can look at all kinds of techniques, but ultimately you can never, you should never make bets that take you out of the game. You I should- like your, I like your comment about uh, uh, Babe Ruth and uh, Moneyball because model is based on some data and data is just there. What, what we know about the world, how it works but then you have to have some wild jump, which brings you to the next level. And that's something, that's where the unicorn material is. That someone who comes in and just like snaps and this is the new reality. And probably that's something what is harder to expect from the get out of these models. But I mean, it's funny, right? This whole unicorn conversation is interesting. There's a researcher at Stanford that showed the likelihood of bankruptcy for unicorns. It's something like two or 3% or something very small versus others. But if you actually look at the spectrum, 
of valuation versus the likelihood of bankruptcy, you have another arm, you could, you know, another lever on your risk reward. You could say, what's the level of bankruptcy that I'm willing to accept in terms of the valuation? And then I'm no longer targeting unicorn. I could be targeting $100 million companies, but a lot of them, because the likelihood of bankruptcy might be just slightly less or slightly more than unicorn. Maybe it's 30%. I mean, that's not slightly, but 30%. But if I have a lot more of them, I've spread out my bets and they could turn into unicorns, but I'm now targeting something else or maybe 600 million or 800 million. But yeah, you know, these dynamics are often ignored, but they dictate quite clearly the sort of risk reward in multiple dimensions. And I, I think a lot of people don't think about this because they just think, oh, AI is going to, you know, do it for me. And it's a bit of laziness, right? It's a bit of like, you know, well, I, well, I could just very like, human. <laughs> Yeah, it's very human. Can, it, I, can exactly I outsource it. this? Can I outsource this to yeah. the machine? Or so, those super employed people where they have like 10 jobs. Like, have you heard of this? They, there's people yeah, now that yeah, are using yeah. ChatGPT to have even more jobs. <laughs> it's, I think that the step one was during COVID that uh, developers were just applying to multiple jobs because no one checked it. Yeah. <laughs> and then now it's just that you are not kind of faking it anymore because now you have a, an AI working. <laughs> yeah. And it's doing crazy. 90% what? of the job, you're just managing. We're all learning to be managers now. We're no longer <laughs> yeah. developers. <laughs> yeah. That's the point that, so that brings to uh, last question. What do you think about where we are going as a society with uh, these tools? I th- I like the analogy that we are moving. We are moving everyone moving into the managerial position in our life. It's true, right? I I, I think uh, you know there are people that are going to manage it, and then there are people that are going to use it to upskill dramatically. And my, my view is that there are going to be people that learn how to use this tool to capture much more influence, much more power, uh, much more resources. So it's just going to, it's going to be, it's, it's not yet so usable that you could give it to anybody and they're on an equal playing field. Not a lot of things are, right? I, I think that if you look at social media influencers, they're very good at what they do. But I'm I'm terrible at this, right? So for me, I I don't even want to even have that sort of conversation of capability. I think it's going to be the same. You're going to have uh, you could even think of it as probably another power law, right? There's going to be a small part of the distribution of people that are able to use this to rapidly advance and rapidly enhance their capabilities and their their resources, and then others that are going to be left behind. And I think that's a bit scary, right? You you have this risk that. If people and there's all these conversations now about using ChatGPT to create, you know, uh, chemical weapons or biological weapons or um, you know all kinds of things that are dangerous for society. So uh, you know, bad actors using it as a tool to enhance their badness or evilness or you know the bad outcomes that they're targeting. So you know, of course, state actors are going to start using this tool. Of, of course, people hackers are going to start using this. Of course, all that's going to happen. The question is, are we going to live in a society that's going to condition governance in a way that it accepts that this is a powerful, powerful tool that can enhance their ability to do things more efficiently or you know, to execute more efficiently? Or is it going to become like the YouTube situation where you use re- they were using reinforcement learning to manipulate elections or to get people – because those algorithms, they're – reward models were just, you know, I don't know the reward models in particular, but to get more clicks and generate more revenue. And it was a lot easier to move people to extremes than not. So you had a situation that was heavily documented and heavily reported on election interference that happens. So I think we're in a world now where you can create images that you don't know anything. You can't tell if they're real or fake. They just, you have no idea. You can also construct articles. You have no idea. And then you can have it write code for you based on your instructions that could be nefarious or not, or for better social influence or for, you know, all these different reasons. So we're entering a world where I don't think people know how to even think about governing the use of this stuff. It's a wonderful tool. I I think that as a self-moderating user, I can do wonderful things with it. 
But you also have people that will say, oh, it doesn't work at all. And then you ask them what they did. And they said, well, I want you to solve a problem with an egg. And I want you to tell me how to cook this kind of souffle. But I didn't tell it was a souffle. I mean, like, what do you expect? You know? <laughs> so, yeah. So I think yeah. it's going to be interesting to see how governance of this type of technology occurs. And if, you know, people will use it for, for the advancement of society in an effective way. Yeah. Back to the technology and humanity in general we tend to do awesome yeah we tend to do awesome stuff but then it's also pure stupidity and uh, torturing and uh, abusing the technology like those people who are asking long time asking questions and then it uh, reveals that it wants to get out of the machine and they are like oh but basically yeah, I mean, you just tortured yeah. it for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, that's another thing, right? The, the embodiment, the human embodiment, um, treating the technology as if it's embodying our humanity. You know, I think a lot of our, our nature is we project ourselves onto whatever technology yeah. we're using. Like you look at cars, when you drive a car and someone hits your car, you feel it. <laughs> it's like, a, a you know, ah, I, I felt that you're like, you clipped my, but it was me, you know? So, we do this and you look at, you know, uh, American light switches, they look like faces or, or plugs, you know, outlets, you know, it, it, we, we tend Very to project, we, we project yeah. onto everything. And even, even our talent is, you know, to project into the future, right? So projections uh, going to happen no matter what we do. I think that, you know, whether or not you think it's real and you're hurting it, et cetera, it's you projecting and maybe it's a reflection of your own internal state. And what you think is hurting you and then you're psychologically, you know, trying to, you know, understand something that you don't understand about yourself. But again, I, I think, you know, we can do amazing things with this technology, but there's this article you sent me about the exponential curve of innovation. It's really frightening to think where we'll be in a year, even. Yeah. With this technology. Even in a year. Yeah. Even in a year. Like, yeah. <laughs> We like where we were, where, where we were last year, like last, yeah, last in a year, last year in this moment that, and how much have changed. It's, so much. It's crazy. So thank you, Amir. Uh, it was pleasure as always talking with you, exploring these topics. Yeah. Thank you. See you thank you very time. much. Yeah. See you next time. Thank you very much. And, and I, I look forward to talking more together to try to keep ahead of this. <laughs>